Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. And welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Very excited to be here with you. We're really excited and honored to have on a guest joining us from Maui. We're going to be speaking to Kahala Johnson, an organizer. But before we do that, we're going to be going over some headlines and some stories. And we're going to be doing that with new friend of the show, Justin Williams. I've had him on my podcast before, but this is the first time he's coming on the live stream. So I'm very excited about that. But before we start on that, please remember to like the stream, give it a thumbs up. Also subscribe, hit subscribe and then hit that bell. If you can become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And we have clips for you every day of the week, and we have a live stream for you every Tuesday. So we're very excited about this. So I'm going to just bring on Justin Williams. He's my partner in crime for this week's Democracy Later, which is what I call my headlines. They're not Democracy Now, they're Democracy Later. So let's bring on, without further ado, Justin Williams, a comedian and co-host of Frosters on the Last Podcast Network. Hi, Justin. Hello, Katie. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining. It's been so long. Oh, yes. I think it was 1972, the last time I did your podcast. It may have been that long ago. Yeah, but it was a good time. It was a good time. That was a most wonderful year. Yeah, it was that pro-Nixon podcast we were doing together. That we started, yeah. And then we parted our ways because once the Watergate thing happened, I became that much more excited about Nixon. And you thought I was like just too into Nixon for it to be professional. Yeah. So we went our separate ways. <laughs> yeah. But finally, we're back. We we're now on speaking terms again. That's good. Yeah, we've mended it after all these years and I'm proud of us. I'm really proud of us because we're going to be looking at some of America's greatest pieces of media. We are blessing you with some amazing clips. The first one comes from an interview that Marianne Williamson did with Bill Maher. I think you're going to really love what Bill Maher has to say. So let's watch this. This is from Bill Maher's podcast, and he's interviewing presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. And so that you are taking well, care of Let's the, not pretend that we don't already have a lot of socialism. Well, we have the police department is basically a socialist. Social Security? Yeah, so, which Medi- came from the Socialist Party. Okay, Medicare. But it's I'm not just, Medicare for all. Unemployment? It's Medicare. It's I not know. Medicare for all. Well, That's Obamacare we, is very getting very close to Medicare for we all. We still have 85 million yes. Americans who are underinsured or uninsured. And you have yeah. to be really like kind of... Kind of buffered well, emotionally are, if you think 85 million people does not matter. No, I, well, I'm, I hope I'm not the straw man who thinks 85 million people. No, I'm people not saying that you are, okay. but I'm just saying when people say, oh, well, that doesn't matter. No, I, but I'm also saying that when you just ride around, you just see a country that does not look like it's falling apart. Bill. Like my eyes also matter. It matters. My eyes also matter. My eyes matter. More eyes matter. Let's do a hashtag. I like Bill Maher because, you know, he's like all, you know, like fallacies and stuff. He's like, well, when I drive around Beverly Hills, I see a country that looks pretty happy and prosperous. Therefore, can we take Bill Maher out after one of his sold out shows in a Rust Belt city so he can reaffirm his faith? Yeah, that's what Marianne's kind of alludes to in in the next uh, seconds. Let's take a look. 
what I read and what people tell me. It also matters that I just live in this world and I travel a lot and I'm out in the city a lot. And a lot of people are just living their best lives. And they're not, they're not all fucking rich. It's not all the top 20%. Uh, for all its horrible problems, this country still somehow, how we got through the pandemic and didn't go broke, I don't know. I mean, we're probably will in the future. Maybe it's the inflation is, is part of that issue. But I just don't see a country where the people are just seething and unhappy when I'm out. And that has to count for something. You know where I was last night? I was speaking to teenagers on Skid Row. Do you know how many people are homeless in Los Angeles County on any given night? 70, <laughs> if you go 80, to Skid Row, thousand. you're going to... Okay. That's, that's my that's, point. You're saying not, you drive around, but where do you drive around? Okay. You don't drive too many miles. I, of course. Why would I go to Skid Row? That's kind of my point. Does not look like it should go into some like sitcom music, like da 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 da. Why should I drive around Skid Row? And then it freeze frames, and then you have the credits. Yeah, you know, it's like James Brown when he was high on PCP in that interview, and they were asking him, "Are you worried?" And he goes, "No, I'm not worried about it because nothing's wrong." And it's like that's the same logic that Bill Maher has there. Same energy too. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna check what's in that blunt. Yeah, exactly. No, I like that. I like that idea that he doesn't see people that are unhappy. Did you check out January 6th? Did you see this? Those people did not look like they were incredibly happy as they were breaching the Capitol. That's actually true also, yeah. But he wasn't there. He's ever been to a Trump rally? What does he think it is? Like a Mamas and Papas concert at these things? It's just like straight anger <laughs> for like three hours in a row. It's true. I think it's really funny the way he goes, my eyes matter too. Like he gets so touchy-feely about it. Because it's the way when you're arguing a position that's not based on any evidence... It becomes, well, you're denying my, and it's like, no, that's not what we're saying. My lived experience. Like, it's funny because he's so anti-woke, but he's basically using the lived experience framing to buffer his point. Well, that's the classic thing with like Bill Maher. And it's been, it's been an interesting shift of people that were considered like bold speakers now that they've become older and they're trying to both sides their audiences. It's a fascinating thing. So Bill Maher does this thing where he's like, I think Trump is bad, but I also don't think that everyone should be forced to undergo gender reassignment surgery, like the loony left. And I'm like, that's not a, you can't just like make up some other thing and then make up a false equivalency. Yeah. Right. To trying to make it like you're not ideological. Yes. Like you're just reasonable. You're in the reasonable center. Yes. Yes. It's the same thing Dave Chappelle uh, has done where he's like, I disapprove of Kanye West, but also here are some anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So I don't lose half of that audience. Both sizing of, of the bold speakers because everybody's just trying to keep their audience. I get it. Maybe the people don't want to be a hacker or whatever on the comedic side, but that doesn't mean you do false equivalents. You can still be edgy in other ways. Yes. And you can also not be, you cannot be, why would I drive around homeless people? Like, I, I mean, you become not edgy. Yeah, that's, I think that's an unforced error on his part. That's like Monopoly Man. Like, you're, yeah, you are the system. Don't try to pretend now that you're, you know, the young guy on Politically Incorrect anymore. You're like, why should I drive around homeless people? Now I have an image of him, though, driving his car around Skid Row. It would be a little weird. Yeah. But there's a difference between that being weird and saying, why would I do that? Yeah. I would like, you know, Bill Maher to drive around Skid Row so he could, I don't know, say something Islamophobic for no reason. See how that goes over? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know... We got Bill Maher, his podcast, we got his world, and then we got Fox News. We got some really wise words of wisdom that come from Fox News. Let's hear what Bill Hemmer of Fox News had to say the other day. 
podcast. Of what the hell is going on with uh, critical race theory? It was very good, very informative. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. It. On, the, on the Princeton point here, you and I have discussed at the college level. This is this fair game. Not Go ahead and do it, right? I'm I mean, sorry. I remember 20 years old going to Trier, Germany, and trying to find the home of Karl Marx because you know. 1848, he wrote Mein Kampf. I want to know what it was all about. So that's part of the education in America, if you so. So, yeah, I mean, I, too, am very curious about what Karl Marx was up to when he wrote Mein Kampf. Yes. In 1848. Well, he was also a very good singer. Karl Marx was a very good pop singer in the 1980s. I had a song called Right There Waiting. Yeah, that was good. And, of course, it was too edgy, but he did put Mein Kampf to that melody. Yes. Music critics said it was a little incoherent and very anti-Semitic, but they did enjoy the production value and the vocals. Yeah. And they thought it was a little weird that it was coming from a Jew, Mein Kampf. But, and we should clarify to people, no, he didn't write Mein Kampf. Of course, he's talking about the Communist Manifesto, Mein Kampf being Hitler's hit, My Struggle, which is slightly different from the Communist Manifesto. Not to Fox News, though. Yeah, yeah. There's one thing I like that the right does, the way they conflate Nazism and communism as if those are we're like we're not like enemies. Opposite side of the same coin. You know, I thought the craziest thing about Karl Marx writing Mein Kampf was when he put all of his brothers in it. Like, why was Groucho in it? Right. Harpo. Never forget Harpo. <laughs> and then did it all and then made that great song out of it. It was a very good group song. It was like a boys to men single. That would be good. Now I want to hear... With AI, I bet we can do it. Can't we get with AI, like Hitler and Karl Marx singing a song together, singing Richard Marx? Probably. Hitler would mess up the track, though. He'd be shouting all over it. Yeah, I know, right. He wouldn't let anyone else's voice shine. Especially Marx, obviously, because he's Jewish. I mean, he converted, but I don't think... Well, we know Hitler wouldn't care about that. Yeah. No, I like Fox News. It's always good. You know, it's so funny. It's like... That clip was so crazy because I also wanted to know what that what the that update on critical race theory as if it's some kind of moving like hurricane storm system. Like, thanks for that update on critical race theory that is moving past Puerto Rico towards Florida with level five speed. Level five. Yeah. It's always a hurricane for these people. Critical race theory. I'm like, can we get back to the phony centrism of Bill Maher, please? Actually, when I watch Fox News. I honestly want to make myself famous. I think I could really blow up if I did videos that were anti-critical race theory, but from the left. Yeah. Like I criticize them for not being sufficiently Marxist. People would click on it. I don't know if they'd sit through it. Yeah. Yeah. You could say critical race theory sometimes uh, when it becomes centered on white people, but like the, the conflation of like critical race theory is not necessarily black studies. Right. So if you're Chris Rader, critical race theory stuff is like telling white people not to be racist. That is actually, has nothing to actually do with like black right. people or black history. Right. So that would that would be like a criticism, but but Fox News doesn't care about that because no, it's all not. bad. It's all yeah, bad. Yeah, here. yeah, they want yeah. But I think that I just do want to really get the click. I think I could really clickbait it if I'm, if you think that you're going to come hear me do it from the right, but I'm actually just disappointed by how it doesn't take materialism into account enough. Yeah. Well, mine is that there's actually not enough promotion of violence in it. I. I oh. For me, the, my criticism about critical race theory, I, I go, you know what? Uh, actually, is a good way to understand institutions is to point a shotgun at them. Yeah, is, uh, yeah. They that you know that would really help if that were more popular. That kind of theory, I think they wouldn't be so uh, opposed to critical race theories. The radical flank theory. I see what you're doing there. Radical yeah, this flank. Is- yeah, this is actually why I've left groups like the Nation of Islam and the Black Panthers and even the New Black Panthers, uh, because they, for me, they weren't sufficiently uh, militant enough. Right. 
Yeah. Like they were like, hold on. Like you got to wait till you get your beret on first. And I'm right. already, I've already shot up the room. Yeah, exactly. I hope, we're, I hope this doesn't get demonetized this stream. This stream? Yeah. No, they can't demonetize this. Uh, they can, but, but just so people know, Justin obviously is a man of peace. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is all satire. Everybody. I've never yeah. shot up a room. Yeah. Not even, not even a corner. Not even, not even a corner. No, yeah, nothing no. was ever shot up. Yeah. It was, yeah, uh, and I also, uh, I, I, I do believe in critical race theory, though. Yeah. You know, I believe that, um, I believe that we should make white people ashamed of themselves. Yeah. In the even classroom. More than, even more than some of us already are, yeah. Yeah, I think if you're not teaching a three-year-old to uh, that's white in the suburbs to hate themselves, then that school should be banned. I'm, right. I'm certain that we're going to start a reverse Florida. Where it's gonna be like uh, young white children reeducation because it'd be like Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Um, where we're just <laughs> we just have like white if kids. If, if there's not enough critical race theory, you shut them down. Yeah, yeah. And if the race theory is if there, if it's not critical enough, like it has to get real critical, like critical right. condition. Real critical. Yeah. 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 Well, I've had on certain guests, like black radical guests, who are who think it's not who think it's too liberal critical race theory. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Sometimes black radicals... not socialist enough. Yeah, but you can become so radical, you could become conservative. You never, like... Uh, maybe not the, not maybe not those people, yeah, but... No. You, have, you know, like, the Nation of Islam? Yeah. Like, how they're, like, a, they're, like, in a crazy blend of, like... This is either super liberal or, like, insanely right-wing, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're interesting. Yeah. Who did you have uh, on? Who did, who did you have um, on? You know, various people... Uh, I don't want to name names. Okay. But, uh, or maybe I'll name names. I'll see how I feel later on. But, um, uh, like Therese Stella, Stella, Stella Burden. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were, they were, they were, and they were just saying that it was just like kind of like a bourgeois, a bourgeois liberal yeah, project. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're right, though. And, and, and right, I think yeah. so, sometimes I, I find it's a jobs program for certain people in academia. Oh, definitely. Too. Yeah. Therese yeah. Burden Stelly. I said it the wrong way. Burden Stelly. I inverted her last names, but she's great. Yeah. Um, would love to have her back on. She's a great. Can I say what you do besides comedy, or is that hidden? Uh, I yes, I, I teach. I teach history. You guys, we have on a comedian and historian. Yes, that's so, pretty amazing. Yes, that's why. Well, I you know not a lot of comedians can do the Karl Marx humor. Right. That's true. You do it well. They try. If you go to your Instagram uh, reels, it's mostly I think uh, guys doing crowd work about Karl Marx these the days. The kids right? are getting, but the kids are getting radical these days. They yes. Like, they, no one wants to pay their dues, though. They just like socialism, but they don't like looking at uh, Karl Marx. Yeah, I find not being able to buy a starter house in the <laughs> the, the neighborhood you come on has been probably the best endorsement for like uh, anti capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, it would be funny. It would be funny for Fox News people to confuse uh, Hitler and Karl Marx. Which, by the way, can you? I'm just so glad Hitler isn't around to see that didn't live to see that him being his being confused with Karl Marx because you know, he'd be very upset about that. Yeah. I can only imagine him as very upset about everything though. Well, that, that is true. That is true. But what do you think that if someone was like, Eva Braun was really beautiful, would he just like scream? Yes, she is. Oh yeah. I wonder about the dynamics of that relationship. You know, the, the history channel got so deep into it. There, there was stuff about like Hitler's sex life and stuff like that too. Right. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel so bad for anyone involved in that. 
I, what, um, what I always like, I'm, I'm always, I, I kind of believe in kind of like the Sasha Baron Cohen thing. It's like, thank God Hitler didn't have the internet. Oh, or, yeah. or how many people on the internet are just Hitler now, but like don't have like access to like a nation state? Oh, you mean th- like globalization watered it down a little bit? Yeah, like there are so many Hitlers now. Like I get like I get clips of like very like you know Instagram knows what upsets me, and it's like right. someone literally saying something Hitler said as like a clip. Yeah, you, you know, you know, some of these like right. uh, Ben Shapiro types, or yeah. you know, these kind of people. Or uh, Thomas Sowell, you know, the black conservative. He's not even conservative. You know, uh, yeah, Thomas Sowell, he's, he's like, uh, you know, I think one thing black people should recognize is the way that slavery elevated us. Oh, wow. As a people. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And you're you like, know, oh, Ron DeSantis needs to, he should appoint him a secretary of education. They will. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, they love, uh, like, libertarians and stuff. They love oh, Thomas God, Sowell. Yeah. 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 Well, Let's let's show this isn't a video clip. We do have one more video clip for you, but I wanted to show an article that viewers may remember last week I had on the wonderful Eugene Purrier, and we responded to a McCarthyite hit piece written by the New York Times that vilified uh, Code Pink, Tricontinental, and the People's Forum, these or- anti-war organizations. They tried to link them to China. And uh, we warned against how dangerous this was. In fact, if you haven't seen it, I really encourage people to watch last week's stream. And also we have some clips from that stream, one about McCarthyism and one about basically just destroying the New York Times' talking points against um, uh, these organizations. And I hope the New York Times is proud of itself because the New York Times inspired a radical truth teller. And let, let, let's, I'm going to tell you who this truth teller is. Let's throw this up on the screen, Brad. None other, none other than Marco Rubio. So thank God for the New York Times, because now that the New York Times wrote this hit piece, um, Marco Rubio wrote to uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland and wants these organizations to be investigated. He writes, I write to express my concern over, uh, can you zoom in more, Brad? Over certain far left organizations Uh, that are reportedly tied to the Chinese Communist Party and operating with impunity in the United States. Combating Beijing's malign influence must be a key objective for the U.S. Department of Justice. Unfortunately, it appears the DOJ is either unaware or ambivalent to this growing threat. It appears, okay, Marco, just like, just in terms of writing, you shouldn't say it appears so close to, to each other. You know what I'm saying? I would just, I used to teach history in high school and I would just take off I would have rewritten that in the, in the comments. It appears that organizations tied to Neville Roy Singham, a U.S. citizen, have been receiving direction from the CCP. Mr. Singham is the founder of ThoughtWorks, a Chicago-based software consultancy, and for many years promoted far-left causes. Mr. Singham reportedly created a dark money system that allows him to send funds to a number of far-left organizations. Um, and then he says, according to the New York Times, reporters, quote, tracked hundreds of millions of dollars to groups linked to Mr. Singham that mix progressive advocacy with Chinese government talking points, end quote. So the problem with this, of course, is that there are lots of things that places like the New York Times and, you know, Cretans like Marco Rubio would dismiss as, as Chinese, China gov- Chinese government talking points. But there are also things that people just b- believe in and not because China finds them politically convenient. It's like what they did with the with Russia Gate when they were mad at like Jill Stein was a Russian operative 
uh, or Abby Martin was a Russian operative or, or spouting Russian talking points because she would talk about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also like the, the hypocrisy of uh, you know, casting aspersions on dark money when all, none of these people support like actual like campaign finance reform oh, course, or actual right. transparency right. and donations. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because they've all got all these bundled donors and all these organizations right. and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad the New York Times. I mean, it's almost refreshing. It's like we were saying that stuff like this was dangerous and will unleash persecution and uh, a witch hunt. And sure enough, it does. And it did. And it's just shameful that more people aren't speaking out about it. And it's shameful that um, that uh, people aren't up in arms about it. Even people who don't particularly like Code Pink. Everyone should be upset when people are accused baselessly of uh, taking orders from China. And and that article in the New York Times is, has absolutely no evidence in it. So anyway, well, okay, we have one more clip that we're, we're going to look at, and then we're going to bring in our guests. And by the way, we have, after this, we have two guests. I'm so excited. Not one guest, but we have two guests, and they're both from Maui, and I'm so excited about bringing them both on. So uh, let's look at one more clip. And this is a friend of show, Eric Adams, who had some interesting thoughts, interesting things to say the other day. We cannot only worship Gandhi. We must practice Gandhi. We need to be Gandhi-like and we need to continue the steps that he started. If we don't continue the steps, then the bullet took away the dream and the vision of Gandhi. Dr. King continued those steps. We must continue those steps. So I'm Gandhi-like. I think like Gandhi. I act like Gandhi. I want to be like Gandhi. And no matter what we do today, raising the flag today is only a symbol of what this great community has offered, not only to New York. But go read the Vedic. Go read your early writings. Go read your early thoughts on science. science. And so the rich tradition of the Indian community, I want it to be the modern-day Ramayana, and say that we can lead against the forces of evil and take us to the next direction on who we are. So I am happy to be here to raise your flag. So that's it. He is like Gandhi. He is Gandhi-esque. He acts like Gandhi. Yes, he does. I, yeah, I always I always get Eric Adams confused, actually, with Mahatma Gandhi. Me, me too. It's so very... every time I'm seeing him, I'm so happy that he's alive, because I thought we lost him. <laughs> yeah. I also think he looks really chubby. Yeah. You know, Mahatma Gandhi also had an apartment in Fort Lee, New Jersey as well. I'm so gullible. I literally believed you for a second. <laughs> I can't believe that. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> no, Eric Adams. I, I like Eric Adams because any other time I hear a soundbite from him, it's not clear whether he's mayor of New York City or running for senator of Alabama. Like, it's always like, Eric Adams said the worst thing that ever happened to society was taking prayer out of the schools. <laughs> You're like, where, where does this guy think he's mayor? It is very weird. Yeah. And then why does he lie about certain things? Like he lies that he's a vegan. Yeah. Like you don't have to lie about that. Like you don't have to pretend to be a vegan to get the vote. I, I also like the, not knowing the nuances of, um, you know, like, uh, you know, Indian Americans. Right. He's like, we must be like Gandhi and embrace all these things. Right. And it's like, I got, got some bad news for you. A lot of people in that audience probably voted for Modi. <laughs> Yeah, and Modi's not a big Gandhi fan, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a, a significant portion of the Indian diaspora in the United States really supports Hindu nationalism. <laughs> but, you know, but God bless him, though. He, he was right that Gandhi 
there, there, there's a good, they're going to thread back to that letter. I saw Kwame Nkrumah's name was evoked. And so Gandhi, uh, who practiced nonviolence uh, and nonviolent resistance, at least, uh, was shot to death. Martin Luther King, same thing, shot to death. And Kwame Nkrumah, uh, you know, deposed by the CIA. But after, you know, he could be a little bit of a dictator, but, you know. Maybe Eric Adams, if he practices like Gandhi so hard and he really becomes the next great soul, he uh, will not uh, lose an election. Yeah, that would be amazing. Maybe he could start doing some weaving. I don't know what he's going to do. Set up set up a loom. He likes hip-hop a lot. That makes him cool, right? Right, he does, yeah. It's 50. Do you like 50-year-old rappers? Who's your favorite rapper, Katie? My favorite living rapper, as Kamala Harris said, is Tupac Shakur. <laughs> she said something ridiculous like that. Like, she said something about when she listened to him that made it very clear she wasn't listening to him because he wasn't around then or something. I don't know. Who's your favorite rapper? Various members of the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. It's very great. But, you know, hip-hop is 50, so it's kind of weird watching my favorite rappers now. They all put on their reading glasses before they freestyle. Yeah, right. That's always a good sign. Yeah. yeah. I like it. You know who I'm very sad about? And I, I spoke about this a couple episodes ago, and I'm going to speak about her more detail because I'm reading her memoirs. Actually, I'm listening to her memoirs, uh, Sinead O'Connor. Yeah. But she was a big rap ally. They didn't televise the rap category in the Grammys in the 80s. And so uh, Public Enemy refused to show up. She did show up and she performed, but she had Public Enemy logo shaved and dyed into her shaved head. I I like Sinead O'Connor because uh, she's on the right side of history on like everything she ever did. Yeah, she is. She was. It's so sad that she died. I'm really sad. But I really do recommend her book, Rememberings. It's a great book. And, And get it on Audible because you can hear her saying it. I'll tell you what does not age well was Joe Pesci's opening monologue. We're going to talk about this on another show. We're going to, we're, I'm going to do, yeah, we'll bring you back to go over it with me. Yeah. Because I actually have that. I have a document where I compile all those things. Yeah. Let's do, come back for the, for the Sinead segment. I would love to. I have some clips prepared for that. Yeah. Well, spoiler alert though. Joe Pesci said what? He'd kick her ass. He, he would give her such a smack. Yeah, he said this after she ripped up the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. When he was on Saturday Night Live the next week, he he said that, yeah. Yeah. This is one of those things where people talk about, like, woke culture, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, it's like, like, what are you talking about going back to where when a uh, a woman speaks out against... Child abuse. A major scandal in the Catholic Church, a man says he's going to smack her on television. It's like, that, is, that, is that wokeness or just, like, not being barbaric? That's the norm, right. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, Justin, where can people find you? You can go to my website, justinwilliamscomedy.com. And if you send me an email, I'll come to your house. Great. Dressed up as what? Whatever you want. All right. But included nice. in the email. Yeah, included in the email. He can't read your mind. All right. Bye, Justin. Thank you so much. Thanks, Katie. So good to see you again. See you soon. That was so much fun. That was the wonderful Justin Williams. How many comedians slash historians do you know out there? He's definitely in my top five favorite comedian historians. We're going to keep the show going. If you haven't already liked the show, please give it a like. Give it a thumbs up. Also, please become Patreon supporters if you can at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you give just $1 a month, that helps the show happen. If you give $5 a month, that helps the show happen and gives you access to almost twice as much content because every week we bring you Patreon only interviews, extended interviews and bonus interviews. So shifting gears, this is a lot more obviously solemn topic than what we were talking about. 
but I'm really honored and moved to have on two guests joining us to talk about Maui. Kaniela Ng is a former member of the Hawaii House of Representatives representing Maui. Currently, he's national director of the Green New Deal Network. And Kahala Johnson is a Hawaiian-Filipina organizer from Maui and a kiai of Halaikala and Mauna Kea. So please welcome Kaniela and Kahala. Thank you so much for joining. And Kaniela, I believe you just got off a flight, so you're joining us. From a rental car. From a rental car. So do you guys know each other from activism? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to say this without sound. It's like an understatement, but I'm so sorry about what's happened. It's heartbreaking and it's infuriating. To start off, can you share what your experiences have been, what your relationship is to Maui? Yeah, aloha. My name is Kohala. Um, my family is from the west side of Maui and Waiahu. Um, I'm currently on the island of Oahu for school, studying political science. Um, like was mentioned before, I'm a kiai or a protector activist for um, Haleakala, which is one of our sacred mountains. Uh, we defended that in 2015 against the Daniel K. Noe telescope. Um, and in 2019, I also stood with protectors um, on Mauna Kea to protect that mountain from the 30-meter telescope, which is an ongoing struggle. I'm currently um, organizing with the Mauna Medic Hui, which is um, managed and organized by Noilani Ahia currently at Lahaina. And I'm uh, Kaniela Ng. You mentioned that I represented Maui in, in the legislature, but I was also born and raised there. I'm Kanaka Maui, come from seven generations. So yeah, it was a harrowing week. It's unclear what the death was going to be. It's at 100 now. It could double or triple as they actually start really looking through the homes. It's only like a quarter of the way there. Initially, all the people I texted were fine. But as I'm going through Facebook and like thinking about my friends from church and sports and middle school, you're, you're realizing like, yeah, there's still there's still people missing. I think anyone who's from Maui has like a really deep connection and they probably know somebody because only like a few folks have actually been identified. So it's like, how do we navigate this like initial trauma, grieve and heal, but also fend off the disaster capitalists and vultures that are that are circulating Alahaina right now? Let's talk about that. Well, before we move on though, is there are there any stories you want to share about people? Any experiences that you feel like it's important to share? Yeah, thanks, Kaniola. Um, it's a really, it is really harrowing and, and tragic right now. Um, working with the Mauna Medics, which is a group that's managed to get close to ground zero. No one's really allowed in um, except for emergency responders. Um, but this Hui has kind of taken the initiative as a grassroots organization to go out into the pockets and satellites of folks who've organized around, in, who are still in the Lahaina and are, are still needing basic needs, materials, medicines. And so this group has done a really good job at making sure to um, make sure those needs are met. Um, while also um, defying some of the colonial and imperial impositions um, that larger NGO NPO um, members, um, as well as the government, have um, brought forward. So, Can you guys talk about the connection between imperialism and these fires, and colonialism, neocolonialism, and these fires? There's so many layers to that, but yeah, sure. Bahaina was 
not always a tinderbox. It was a lush wetland that was a birthing place of aquaculture, what the Westerners are discovering now. So there was, you could actually like have a boat circulate the Wyola Church, which is a very famous church that was a resting place for a lot of our uh, Ali'i, our chiefs that, um, that burned down uh, with the fire. Uh, and it was in the turn of the 20th century where sugar barons diverted water illicitly uh, to irrigate their monocrops on uh, on stolen land. So <laughs> if it weren't for that uh, initial sin, um, this fire probably would not have happened. Uh, they also introduced native grass, and there's also this this uh, way of extractive living that has sent a blanket of pollution up into the sky that has overheated our earth, um, caused the winds to get warmer and therefore faster. Um, and it's, that's also a colonial force um, that that sent uh, behind a ton of blaze. Uh, and finally, there is a utility that in a town that's $1.3 million, that has $1.3 million median homes, generally the power lines are buried. These were wooden and not maintained for decades, um, despite despite us having um, the highest, uh, a higher cost of monthly utility bills than anywhere across America. Um, the second highest is half as much as Hawaii. Uh, my house pays $600 a month for insurance. They brag about their record profits, yet they allow their power lines to just fall like this. Um, and I think the through line between those three things is corporate greed. And all three uh, of these institutions, like the fossil fuel industry in Hawaii, uh, the corporate utility, and uh, the, the people who sell our water, uh, they're all legacies of the big five fam missionary families, original oligarchs of Hawaii, um, and they persist today. Can you talk about who these big five are? Yeah, these are um, names like Alexander and Baldwin Campbell, um, and basically these are folks who are descendants of the missionaries, who, Calvinists who came to Hawaii and um, brought over their religious ideologies, um, which also led to them getting close to the Hawaiian monarchy at that time. Um, and a lot of their work was to influence the way that the structure of government law um, would proceed. They were able to accumulate enough capital on land um, to create the beginnings of a plantation economy, um, which saw the first the exploitation of native labor, and then later after the overthrow of the kingdom in 1893 and 1898, annexation, well, proposed annexation, um, we saw the influx of contract labor from other areas of the world, particularly Asia. Um, this plantation economy, these, this big five, were also the folks who led the overthrow of the kingdom in 1893 and 1898. So we have this kind of continuum of white, rich men, capitalists, plantation owners, controlling not just the government, but also, as Kanyela mentioned, the water resources, land resources, which is the prelude to what we're seeing right now with the consequences of the fire. These people, do they live in Hawaii? Do they have houses there and live in other states as well? 
Yeah, so the Baldwin Estate is like something like the Righteous Gemstones, where they have like just way too much land and a bunch of bumbling idiots. Yeah, uh, like you know those types. But these are now like multi. These are like publicly traded companies with shareholders that have no vested interest in Hawaii. So like Alexander Baldwin, for example, is the largest landowner on Maui and one of the top political contributors today. So they still have that oligarchical grasp on local society here. And uh, they were in the agriculture business. So all the sugarcane that, that Maui was famous for throughout my entire lifetime growing up uh, was essentially under their control. And they knew, they knew it wasn't profitable, but they kept it in sugar because they got the agriculture tax breaks at just just to hold on to the land and let it appreciate um, and not develop it for the people. Once, um, of course, I grew up in an environmental justice community where it would rain sugarcane ash on me. We all got asthma. Um, a bunch of activists stood up and didn't want cane burning. They And then, of course, the company pitted the union, the workers, against that community. So as soon as sugar went, over, went under, uh, they blamed it on the activists, right? So it's like that kind of division that, that they sow in our community for... Um, has been just like it, it's just the same playbook since not just before statehood but before territorial days what else do you think that the media is not getting right in its coverage of what's happening either distorting or omitting i think there's a lot of erasure particularly with uh, native narratives um, kanaka maoli narratives um what i see a lot you know it's and it's difficult for me as, just as a, as a kanaka as a, as a human being I know there's a lot of grief and tragedy that's going on right now, and um, there's a lot of trauma, as Kanyela mentioned. Um, and at the same time, I also know that a lot of times with these kinds of crises, we forget about the on the crises that was already happening prior to this this occurrence. So uh, my my parents are houseless. They were houseless during COVID, um, and during that experience, there was a lot of anti-houseless things that we had to deal with, a lot of you know poverty shaming and whatnot. And then this event occurs and it affects so many people from all sorts of uh, walks of life, not just Kanaka. However, I guess the social infrastructure, the media infrastructure that was already stigmatizing houseless folks, who are majority a percent of Kanaka Maoli of Hawaiians, that kind of erasure and that kind of stigma continues. And so we're seeing this, this lack, I would say, um, particularly for the local news media outlets of narratives at center how this fire how this disaster is connected to all the things that we've talked about right now um most of the things that most of the information that i'm getting is from activists and grassroots folks on the ground who are talking to the continent because that's one of our folks on the u.s and other in the international realm um because that's almost that's almost the only way that we can get our own stories here's like getting it out of that hegemony that oligarchy control of, of the narrative um, but yeah, I, I think that's a really big thing. How Hawaiians have been dealing with, we, we, we're, we are the most harmed in these situations to come from the transformative justice language. We're the most harmed. Um, we're survivors. And we've been facing this, these kinds of di- disasters for years because of imperialism and colonialism. And they've exacerbated our, our, our social issues, our political issues. That should be centered um, a lot more. And there's a reason why that's not happening, because the groups who, like the Big Five, um, who overthrew our kingdom, who continue to oppress our people, control the media. So, Speaking of the media's focus in this tragedy and this outrage, 
This is a tweet from someone who's a New York Times journalist who tweeted, On Friday, Alicia Stratton searched desperately through the wreckage of her Lahaina home for the Rolex watch her parents gave her when she graduated college. Suddenly, her fiancé pulled it from the ashes. You found it, she said, choking up. It was damaged, but still legible. So, Kaniela, you expressed some frustration with that tweet. I believe you tweeted in response to that, there are Kanaka Maoli bodies in that wreckage. How dare you post this? So, can you explain your frustration with that tweet? I mean, it's what it is. Like, the fuck? I mean, it's, it's like, I guess it's cute and kitschy, if if you're a New York Times reader who happened to be like upper middle class white readers, if this was like three months from now, it would be distasteful. But right now, when people are still looking for their loved ones, it's fucking disgraceful. Like these people, I mean, when we talk about like oligarchs control the media, we do mean like billionaires buying the, the media like that. That is actually happening. But there's supposed to be like a firewall between the ad room and the newsroom. And... <laughs> If, if, if you ever pick up a New York Times uh, any day of the week, you'll see Rolex paid articles in it. And then like this, like it's like so blatant, you know, and all the times, like when all the eyeballs are on Maui, you like place this ad for them. And it's disgusting. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, like you said, there are still people missing and there's still people missing now. And we're supposed to get touched or excited about a found ridiculously expensive watch. Yeah. And it's like, we're talking about it. I tweeted about it. It went very viral and like, that's what they want. So it's like, it's hard to, it's like the systemic problem, problem of like journalism for clicks and, and understanding their audience. Their audience is people who care about who might've got a Rolex from their parents as well. And they can relate to it. So like, as long as we have media that's controlled by corporations, uh, we should expect this kind of thing. Um, yeah, like if, if we get if we fire this reporter, the next one would do the same thing. Oh yeah, it's not right. Like it's systemic. It's not about this one random reporter, right? It's a, this media ecosystem in which that something like that would even happen, and he's not acting in a vacuum either, right? I mean, he's he's a complete plug. Like he still deserves to be reprimanded. Don't get me wrong. Sure, but it's not just one person. He's not like an outlier. He's not a, what is it? It's not a, a, a bug. He's a feature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to share with you guys a response from Biden. So the first response we're going to look at is a series of tweets where he announces some policy. Okay, so we have, uh, here's Biden. He tweets out, as residents of Hawaii mourn the loss of life and devastation taking place across their beautiful home, we mourn with them. Like I've said, not only our prayers are with the, those impacted, but every asset we have will be available to them. Here's the latest. One, FEMA's temporary sheltering assistance is now available for residents who are displaced from their homes by the wildfires, allowing survivors to shelter in hotels or motels temporarily as they develop long-term housing plans. Two, we're laser-focused on getting aid to survivors, including critical needs assistance. A one-time $700 payment per household, offering relief during an unimaginably difficult time. Uh, we have staff on the ground dedicated to helping survivors navigate the registration process. So what are your thoughts on this one-time payment? I'm going to call us big to it because unsheltered folks aren't getting it if it's like per household and immigrants. And like if you're undocumented, if you're what the migrant workers that they exploited, like you're not getting this and 
you, you can take it from there. Um, yeah, it's this is this is typical of what we've seen with these kind of centrist arguments that you know it's a drop in the bucket. And and I'll be honest on 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 the front lines we don't we don't see that we don't see that coming in. What we see what we do see are um, folks from all sorts of different backgrounds coming in and just volunteering and helping. Um, what you'll hear a lot um, at the front lines are folks being believing in, in just community um, and re realizing that. <laughs> All the shit that Kanaka Maoli have had to deal with, including, um, you know, white supremacy, capitalist degradation of our lands and whatnot. Um, folks are realizing that, oh, wow, you know, Hawaiians, you have networks, you organize really well in these kinds of situations, kind of like on Mauna Kea or Haleakala. Um, and so <laughs> what I, what I'm, I, I'm not an American, so I can say this. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think the government will, be there in any capacity, even when they're promising these kinds of, you know, small remittance, remittance packages. And what I do believe in, though, is the power of Kanakamali and our allies, our comrades and people um, who are there with us, uh, fighting for us with some of them having also lost everything in the fire. Um, and that's inspiring. Um, it's something that I've been really thinking about over the past couple of days. Yeah, and I'll add that, like, government can be a force for good when it's like unmoored from like corporate influence and certain influences. Um, it's just a, it's just a really unique and paradoxical um, relationship between like the federal government and the state government and uh, like communities on the ground here. And there's a lack of trust right now, even receiving aid from FEMA and the Red Cross. And, um, you know, I, I think what's vital right now is for us to make sure that when there's outreach happening, that it's like from community to community. So rather than looking at it through the colonial lens of like helping people, we're like empowering them by actually going to the ground and being like, here's like what you got to know about FEMA, here's what you got to know about insurance claims. And we're actually, I'm going there right now. We're going to like organize people at all the different hubs that Red Cross didn't set up, the community set up um, to actually go and do these wellness checks themselves and then compile that and then use that data to actually address needs as like in the long run, um, but also build power. So maybe two years from now, we have 200 people that we can, and like 20 community leaders that can mobilize 200 people to build homes. The next day, go to the council, uh, present a community run master plan for development. Like that's the ultimate goal. Um, and it's so, like everything we need to be doing is is with an eye on um, power. We call it Ho'omana here in Hawaii. Um, like we should be power hungry in a way, not not in the colonial way where it's a power over, but power with power for. Um, and that's that's how that's like why we created this like Hawaii uh, recovery fund. So because it's like right now, it just it's it's all about charity. Um, but we know what happens. Like once the acute trauma is gone, the cameras leave. Uh, it's 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 tough. Uh, we demobilize, um, and we're waiting for like the next shoe to drop. But really. Um, uh, we are the purveyors of a better world, um, and we gotta. It's like to, to hit that light switch, and especially in like like a low income person or like Kakamoni's mind, when you've been told your whole life that you're not good enough to be like, okay, you'll see your protected community, but can you actually have your hands on levers of power? Like to get them there is hard. Like that's, but that's the soupiness organizing that that uh, we're charged to do in this moment. I want to show you a clip of Biden to get your reaction to this. Um, 
where he's talking about uh, declaring a climate emergency. Call climate change a code red for humanity. The World Health Organization said it will cause an additional quarter of a million deaths a year starting in 2030. Are you prepared to declare a national emergency with respect to climate change? I've already done that. National emergency, we've conserved more land. We've moved and rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. We've passed a $368 billion climate control facility. We're, we're moving. It's the, it is the existential threat to humanity. So you've already declared that national emergency. Practically speaking, yes. Yeah. I mean, remember when Democrats used to talk about, uh, I believe in science? Like, this is climate denial. What Biden has done so far was more than other presidents, but it's only because the movement was set up and we rose up in ways that we haven't in the past. Um, and it wasn't nearly enough. The Inflation Reduction Act had a lot of provisions in there that actually worsened inequality, that actually left low-income people, people of color, worse off. Um, so I think in terms of decarbonization, like maybe it'll get us closer to three degrees, four degrees, like three and a half degrees warming compared to pre-industrial levels. That's still catastrophic. That's still the threat of a kid that's behind me. When he's my age, he might not have running water. He, his whole town might be burnt. Like what this disaster show me. I do this work for a living, this climate stuff. I do this full time. And I still talk about climate, like how I just did. 10 years from now, whatever. But like the urgency is what happened in Lahaina could happen to any of us. It could happen to your community, Katie, like your schools, kids go to, the church, you pray in, the grocery store you shop could be reduced to ashes tonight while you sleep. Like that's the urgency of this crisis. So to say that you practically done something is is insulting to the legacies of all who perished in this fire. And anything less at this point than like a trillion dollars a year from the U.S. government it is just unacceptable. Because morally, morally, just how much we contribute, all the all the main companies that are producing over 70 percent of the carbon pollution today originate from the U.S., like, you know, like to pass the buck at this point when you did the bare minimum is uh, is anti-science and it's it's outright climate denial. Paolo, what about you? Do you have any any uh, reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of want to get angry, but part of me is also just really desensitized to anything coming out of the establishment at the moment. Um, but I hear what Kaniala is saying, definitely, as somebody who's been working on that. Um, the sad part thing, the sad part though, is that despite these images of real consequences of climate change, sea level rise, all the things, despite all of that, you still have that one fucking tourist who's going out on the boats, on the tour boats to like go see the turtles while everything behind them is completely ruined, you know, um, that mentality, you know, <laughs> that's 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 not rare. That's very common. And I wish I could say, I, I want to hope that folks aren't going to be that way all the time, that they're, they're going to have a lot more um, compassion and empathy and more, more importantly, do something about this in their own communities that they're accountable to. And then the Rolex ball, you know? So <laughs> it's a lot of feels. It's a lot of um, re-traumatizations. What's helped me, though, is... Talking with those who are on the ground, talking with those who are supporting 
us from the other islands and just reminding them of whatever happens, you know, we're here for each other. Nobody saves us but us, right? And that power that comes from the community, when we recognize it, we recognize each other. I think that's worth a lot more than any kind of recognition or acknowledgement from the establishment. Though they need to do their shit. <laughs> I'll be real about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would love to just do like on the ground work towards like sovereignty. But like, what's a sovereign nation if the whole, whole Hawaii is burned to the ground and we don't have running water? Like, that that's the severity of this crisis. And unfortunately, the only institution that's big enough to solve it in terms of the scale and scope of the crisis is the federal government. So I got to play that game, I feel like, or like, what am I doing? Um, but also, I got to stay rooted in local organizing because when I don't, I just like crumble. So that's why I'm like, <laughs> we're setting up these hubs we're doing the wellness checks and we have an eye for like the long-term power building in this project. You guys have been so generous with your time and I know it's such a hard time and there's so much to do. So any final thoughts, um, th messages that you want to leave uh, the audience with? Yeah, I am like, everyone has their own God. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in a position to cast moral judgments on anyone, but uh if, if deciding to come to Hawaii, you have a vacation planned, uh, just, just, just wait, just think about you frolicking in, in, in this waters while that so, so many of our, our loved ones drowned in, um, you're like, is that the choice you want to make? And if you were looking at ever buying a home in Hawaii, uh, just know that the, the thousand missing didn't include all of those houses, people that were forced out. And in fact, Lahaina wouldn't be the dry tinderbox that it was if it wasn't for that demand. So yeah, we have collective responsibility. There's systems to blame, but uh, you also gotta you also gotta realize like how you contribute to the problem. So for me, echoing the same thing. Uh, don't come to Hawaii. It's gonna be said over and over again. Um, and Kanaka Mali will continue to educate, but at a certain point in time, you're going to have to take accountability for, for that decision. And the other thing is also with the predatory um, corporations that are coming in, um, it's important that we recognize that coins are not, we're not giving up. We're not going to leave. We're, we're still going to be here. Um, if you can, if you can give that money that you would have to like buy your second, third, fourth home in, in Hawaii, to Kanaka Maoli, who are, have been unsheltered for a long time. My parents, other folks that have a long list of folks, of unsheltered folks that you can donate that money to for your, from your vacation or second, third home. Um, that's solidarity. That's, that's land back. That's all the things that can help us to help us to, to practice our sovereignty and our self-determination. So, yeah. And mahalo for everyone else who's, thank you for everyone else who's been supporting us all the way. We really appreciate that. Solidarity and liberation. I also wanted to ask you guys if you have any places that you would like to encourage people to donate to. Yeah, I have two. So one one is directly to families via Venmo and Go GoFundMe. That's the best way. Venmo is preferred. When I'm talking to survivors, that's like their main request. Because the other funds, like there are funds that raise $18 million. No one knows where that's going. Those funds, while they might be positioned decently, to disperse funds rapidly, uh, 
not rapid enough, but that's because of their institutional ties. It also positions them to be the most likely to enable disaster capitalists to exploit this tragedy. So, you know, we created Maui Just Recovery understanding that we got all the most accountable rooted organizations together and it's a C3 and a C4. And coming into this conversation, you, you two are having a conversation around like, um, you know, which ones are out of like nonprofits. All the things that like Hong Nani K Trask did or like Martin Luther King did in the civil rights movement would be illegal today. The national tenants' rights or welfare rights organizations would be illegal because the IRS has weaponized their regulation against the movement. So we realized like if we're going to do the work that's going to be required in the long run, we're going to need money that's not more to like direct aid, um, especially as like FEMA and all the other like billions of dollars mobilized. We're just going to take $6 billion to, to rebuild. Um, that money isn't going to come from philanthropy. That money is not going to come from the grassroots. We're going to have to find money to leverage that, those funds from governments. That's just the reality of it. Um, whether, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. And if we're not doing it, then the disaster capitalists are. Um, those and, and the, all, the same oligarchical families are. So that's why we created the Maui Just Recovery Fund. It's MauiRecoveryFund.org. Um, but I encourage folks to give first off to the families directly with Venmo, but understanding that this is going to be years and years of fighting in order to um, have a just recovery. Hala, do you have any places that you want to encourage people to give to? Yeah, um, again, like what Kanyela said, um, directly to the families will be the most important. Um, uh, the group that I'm working with, the Ma, uh, Medics Healers Hui um, on Maui, who's currently being organized by Noilania here. That's also a really good on-the-ground grassroots um, initiative. And just just to kind of echo again, like this this stuff is going to take years and it's also going to be really messy. So there are some things that, in terms of like finances, that we're going to have to really get into, into place. Um, but yeah, those two. Um, Teomoku Kapu is also another person um, on Na, Na Ikane. They lost a really important cultural center in Lahaina to the fires. A lot of um, of our, our religious items, um, our, our cultural items, um, archival documents um, all went up in flames. So they will need help to restore that effort. I appreciate everyone for, for your donations and solidarity. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.